Michael Gibson is co-founder and general partner of the 1517 Fund and author of the book, The Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. Michael, welcome to The Splinter. Thanks for having me on. So Michael, you've written this wonderful book that I think uh, has best been described as part memoir, part manifesto, in which you very convincingly uh, describe the problem of stagnation and argue that a kind of sclerosis has taken over most of our major, most important institutions in society. So I think the best place to start is with the title. What is the paper belt and why are you dedicated to setting it on fire? That's awesome. It was hard to name the book because of partly because of the reasons you mentioned. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to explore the human side to a lot of what I experienced in Silicon Valley, working with some incredible people, um, you know, Peter Thiel, Vitalik Buterin, these, these are you know, really big name people over the last decade. And I wanted to present a side that you can only you know, depict when you're telling stories. But on the other hand, there was this um, springboard I wanted the book to be to address some of these sclerotic uh, institutions. And probably most prominent of all is, is the university system. Uh, so, Balaji Srinivasan, a friend of mine, provocateur, uh, technologist, investor, I met him in 2012. He was a mentor for the Teal Fellowship. He was working on a company called Council, and we just hit it off. And Balaji, if anyone follows him on YouTube or Twitter, he's, he's an idea sparker. Um, we were discussing... Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. So the, the, the purpose of those systems and the architecture behind them was certainly in our mind. Uh, biology, um, he, you know, I have to credit him with the coining of, of the term paper belt uh, for, you know, it was used to describe this configuration of power and in, in, in institutions along the East Coast of the United States. So just as the Rust Belt has come to define the Midwest, uh, the paper belt we were theorizing would come to define the government, uh, you know, administrative bodies and even private corporations that are all based on paper in some fashion. So in Washington, people print money, laws, regulation on paper. In Delaware, people incorporate on paper. In New York, uh, there's the media, Madison Avenue, print advertising. There's print media, there's TV media, but the, the, you know it's only because the print media was there first. And then the, uh, Boston represented the pinnacle, uh, the highest symbol of, of American education with Harvard, MIT, and, and they print diplomas on paper. Uh, one thing of note uh, about paper-based institutions is that uh, we rely upon the, the competence and the trustworthiness of the people within this institution in order to authenticate and validate some piece of paper. So what do I mean by that? If you know, take like a dollar bill, um, the, tre the treasury prints money. Um, they also you know, verify if something is counterfeit or not. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, works to maintain the, you know, the sound monetary policy, indicating that the, the, the signal that this, this money represents it is valid. Um, in let's say up in, in in Boston, if I have a Harvard diploma, theoretically that institution will authenticate that my degree is real. They also work to uh, ensure that the signal it sends is, is worth paying attention to as well. 
And so one of the, when we speak about institutional decline, it seems to be the case, although it could be argued maybe it's, you know, for other reasons or, you know, in the past, we just didn't notice as much. But, but nevertheless, those two attributes, uh, trustworthiness and uh, competence or reliability, those have both been in decline with many of these institutions in the last 40 years. So with the Federal Reserve, yeah, I think there are well-meaning actors, but they have very blunt tools for trying to control uh, the economy and maintain their dual mandate of 2% inflation and low unemployment. Uh, we might even question, though, that uh, maybe they are corrupt. Uh, certainly in other areas of the government, corruption seems to be uh, pretty rife. Um, so these actors can't be relied upon. Um, this was the heart of Satoshi Nakamoto's you know, philosophy guiding the creation of Bitcoin. And so I, I saw that it, was a, it seemed to be just like this really valuable x-ray into things. We had started the Teal Fellowship because you know, Peter Teal um, had, had grown uh, jaded uh, by the university system. He's been a longtime critic, wrote a book mm -hmm. about political correctness and uh, what is now wokeism. But back in the in the 1990s, he thought about starting his own university and, and then became disillusioned by that process. Uh, so we started the fellowship as, as okay, what, what can we do outside this, this dying institution? So I wanted the book to be more than just like, okay, uh, commentary about universities, because it seemed to be this broad trend that, that all these different institutions that seem uncorrelated nevertheless had this strong uh, directional movement into in decline so so mm -hmm. that's a long-winded way of explaining the title uh it's a hard book to name I, I i thought it was provocative my editor she certainly thought it was provocative but i've noticed <laughs> for for normies out there in the world or people who work in the paper belt they, they tend not to get it <laughs> yeah yeah no no that was a great answer uh speaking of the normies let, let's start there you've yeah. already touched on education your book is mm. a pretty powerful indictment of education in america from like pre-k to phd but some people, some of our listeners will no doubt be surprised to hear all the harsh things you have to say about the college degree. Mm. It's, you know, this symbol of um, this cultural symbol of accomplishment. It's a core component of the American dream. It's, you know, a you know, path to upward economic mobility for many. So uh, what's the problem with the modern college education? Well, one thing I think is a problem that I don't even touch on in the book at all is the woke mind virus and the leftward bent of universities. So I, I, I do think they have become hive minds. You just look at donation patterns of faculty and administrators. You look at the policies they put in place, the threats to free speech and so on. All of that is concerning. But leaving it aside, I think there are even more trenchant uh, criticisms of the university system that I wanted to focus on. And one of them is like, just what is the substance of what's happening here? Uh, the costs of tuition have gone up extraordinary uh to new high you know it's just incredible eye-popping mm -hmm. eyes something like uh, 4x in real terms i think from 1980 to the present um you know there aren't many other areas of the economy that have seen that rate of inflation in price um along with that now people accumulating debt and what does that mean for their life choices and their dreams and their passions um you know it's created a, a macroeconomic situation where we have presidential, uh, you know, we have presidents like Biden trying to 
forgive 440 billion in student debt just because it's such a disaster. But what's so infuriating about that is that then the universities get off scot-free and no one seems to hold them accountable. Um, so there, there, there's that problem. The next one is, is uh, uh, in economics, there's a debate about what the college wage premium is. I mean, it's, everyone agrees that college pays, but the question is why. The standard story is this theory about human capital, meaning people acquire skills and then those skills are rewarded in the, in the labor market. Um, but you know, a growing number of economists you know, paint this as a, a dubious theory, and there's a lot of evidence to, to support their claims. The first one is something called the sheepskin effect. Uh, this is uh, it named after because diplomas used to be made of sheepskin, I, I suppose, in the medieval times. But one of the interesting, if, if, if education is about human capital acquisition, uh, then we should see a rate of increase in people's wages for every year of college that they complete, almost as if you know, all the way to the top, you get to that full college wage premium. But that's, in fact, not what you see when you look at the data. For every year of education, there is a bump in, in average wages or median wages. But uh, something like a, more than a third, 40% of that bump occurs when the last credit is awarded. That, that, if, that doesn't make sense on the human capital model. Um, you know, if, you've, if, you've got, if you need 100 credits to graduate and you have 99 and you get hit by a car on your way to the last exam and you don't finish and, and then you don't get your degree, uh, it seems to be, you know, human capital model would predict, okay, well, out in the labor market, you'll probably make just as much as the person who graduated. but that's not what we see. You make you know thirty, forty percent less. So that you know it's it's, it's um, economics research like that that leads me to question. Okay, what is going on at these universities? Why are we in this high prestige status competition over rivalrous exclusive goods? And you know it's, it just seems like it's 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 really deforming of the human spirit, and and no one's really paying attention to that because there are critics who think, oh, there's the leftward bent, and if we just had you know, more balanced faculty, then things would be okay. But, but I think it's important to say no, you know, that something's deeply wrong here in Denmark. As uh, Brian Kaplan says, would you rather the Princeton education, but no Princeton diploma or the Princeton diploma, but no Princeton yeah, education? I think that's I think, telling, uh, right? That says it yeah. all. Because a lot of people would take the diploma. <laughs> yeah. Well, the academy, yeah. continuing down this path, the academy is about more than just education. Mm. It's also the heart of scientific research in America. Yeah. Your book discusses research by the American economist Benjamin Jones, in particular, a paper of his called The Burden of Knowledge and the Death of the Renaissance Man, Is Innovation Getting Harder?, which he published back in 2005. His theory is that um, our body of scientific knowledge is ever growing, and this places an increasing educational burden on every you know successive generation of scientists that wants to make progress in their field, which ultimately makes breakthroughs harder to achieve. The theory has two major implications: age and specialization. So, if the frontier keeps getting further and further away, it's only normal that scientists will make original contributions only much later in life, and that they'll do so in ever narrower fields of of substudy. So I guess my question is, what do you think of his theory? Does it help explain stagnation? And does the future of progress depend on old specialists? I, I love Jones's work, but I, I disagree with his conclusions. Uh, so descriptively, I think he, he's pulled up some fascinating trends as well. Um, 
yeah, I, that was a great summary that you just gave. One thing as a ba- way of background is the, is the theory that we're not making progress as fast as we used to. Maybe, uh, or certainly in the field of uh, computers and communications technology, the world bits, uh, it does seem to be you know, the case that we see exponential growth. That is how the U.S. used to grow in all fact, as, uh, different sectors of the economy. So th- something happened in 1971 or so where the rate of progress slowed down in these different areas. You can think of energy creation and our unwillingness to develop nuclear energy, perhaps education. You know, we're paying so much more and it's not clear people are learning four times more, even if they're paying four times as much. Um, So in my investigation into why things have been slowing down, I think Jones's research is really important to, to look into. So I think, uh, you know, maybe to, to, as a way of analogy, uh, think about how women, you know, fertility is in decline. And one, one of the reasons is that women want to embark on careers. They accumulate lots of years of education. And some of them, in increasing numbers, are putting off childbirth until uh, their late 30s or early 40s when it is very difficult to conceive or have, have children. Um, there very much is a biological clock when it comes to having babies. What Jones's research shows is that creativity is very similar. Uh, creative works are born in this world, and it seems to be the case that we have a very fertile period in our life when we're more capable of doing it than others. Um, you know, uh, just like women accumulating those years of education, Jones points out that's what scientists have been doing. It's like mm-hmm. it takes longer and longer to get to the frontier of knowledge in any field. Uh, you could look at the uh, you know, average, average length of PhD completion time that you know, in the 1920s, uh, at the heyday of quantum mechanics or Einstein's revolution, people were getting PhDs in three, four years. Uh, now it takes eight years. Uh, and, and so that what that means is in, it, instead of getting, you know, tackling some difficult subject at 25 or 26, uh, now physici- physicists have to wait till 30 or 31 to, to get started. So Jones points out, okay, when, when was the first, how old was someone on average when they published their first paper? How old was someone when they wrote the paper that won them the Nobel Prize, their peak achievement? And then, you know, in their later state years, you know, what was their, you know, great masterwork perhaps, or a, mm-hmm. a, a you know, polished work of accomplishment. You know, you see this in, in all fields, arts, literature, uh, and even science. So Einstein's a good example. He had his uh, breakthrough fundamental discoveries and in, in, I think 1905 or so. It's like this miraculous year. He publishes three papers. All three are just mind-bending, uh, paradigm-shifting uh, ideas. Uh, one will go on to win him the Nobel Prize. He comes out, I, I believe, you know, one is special relativity. Well, he doesn't publish the paper on general relativity until you know, 10, 12 years later, I think. And then in his later years at Princeton or the Institute for Advanced Study, you know, he, he, he publishes one paper that's widely cited on um, spooky action at a distance. So uh, that kind of arc is something we see across uh, the lives of great scientists and what Jones says is like, okay, it's taking people longer to get to the frontier, but we're not seeing 
a corresponding increase in productivity mm-hmm. into middle age. So just that birth analogy is, fits perfectly. So people start late and then they end at the same time. So that window when they can be productive is, is much smaller than it used to be. And, and I thought that was fascinating because it is related to scientific research at the university it shows that we're slow getting people to the frontier. And I think that is a, a big factor in this great mm-hmm. stagnation. Yeah, I think the research is, is just so fascinating. And it, the, the, the problem is, is trying to identify, you know, in which direction the causality flows. Right. Are, are we becoming increasingly specialized and older because the specialization is required for progress and therefore justifies the age? And that's where I guess, you know, we're okay, living yeah, in the way. Yeah. So I didn't mention my disagreements, but that was my disagreement was mm-hmm. Jones theorizes that the burden of knowledge is just greater. So mm-hmm. if we see further because we stand on the shoulders of the giants, well, now the giants, you got to climb, you know, 25,000 feet uh, to get there, uh, which just requires time. In, and in some sense, people have a understanding that that could be true. So the math involved in quantum mechanics is certainly more complicated than Newtonian mm-hmm. physics. Um, but when I see the waste uh, of time and money in the, in the K through 12 school system, when I think about how uh, little people care about speed and urgency and undergraduate and graduate education, I can't believe that we're mm-hmm. at, you know, as efficient as we could be at getting people to the frontier. And yeah. then there are also other aspects, too, where I think the, uh, the specialization is interesting, too, where you know, maybe the rewards and punishments of academic life are what lead people into that rather than this this claim that only you know five people can understand this this field because it takes forever to get to the frontier we're uh we're living in the wake of the uh the cultural moment that was the oppenheimer movie and uh, (laughs) i recently discovered online this graph that shows the age distribution of the scientific employees at los alamos in the summer of Mm. may 1945 and it's just an amazing graph it's incredibly skewed towards the young the average age amongst these 400 employees was 29 and the rest of the distribution is like, you know, smush between 20 and 30. And so it's just uh, incredible to see the amount of young people that were contributing in really harsh conditions at a really pressing time on both the most theoretical, advanced theoretical and practical aspects of of a field. And they didn't need the, you know, the age or the specialization to do so. I've seen that graph. Yeah, it's really impressive. It seems to be the case. I guess Op- I can't remember Oppenheimer. He must have been in his late thirties, I think. Um, so it seems like the management was older, but the a lot of the younger minds were the ones you know, doing the intellectual heavy lifting. The death of the Renaissance man part is the one I find also fascinating, as it relates to creativity. Mm. If you have to dedicate yourself to a more specialized field, um, maybe that means you don't have you know the area in your life for the eclectic interest that so many of our great yeah. thinkers had in the past you know richard Feynman was a famous you know prankster and uh, oppenheimer <laughs> was into politics and sanskrit and you right. know schrodinger was into quantum mechanics but he also had a deep interest in philosophy and it's like it feels like some of the eccentric professor flair or cowboy scientist spirit has been lost and maybe that's what needed that is what's needed to make progress you can't just compensate by working multidisciplinary teams maybe you have to internalize knowledge from different areas of science in order to disrupt the field and not just consolidate with what's come before. Yeah, there's a lot of research in the psychology of creativity as it relates to achievement 
and uh, success. And and sure enough, there 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 is some indication. I wouldn't like try to pick people just based on this, but it is true that Nobel Prize winners, you know, why are they? Why did they win the Nobel Prize over their colleagues? Well, it's not just raw IQ. There are a lot of smart people who don't win Nobel Prizes, but there tends to be a pretty good correlation that they are actually, uh, you know, multi-talented. Uh, they, they, they're not just great in their one domain. They also, I mean, it could be something like violin or guitar, but people seem to have uh, interests that span beyond just their immediate um, research agenda. So that, that, you know, that's one thing. But, that, but there's uh, something too as well where I think back to this story. I think there's a just a, all right. So we talked about how scientists have a a, a life cycle. Um, they mm-hmm. do you know they have a prime like you know, we see this in math and chess. Uh, it's also true of chemistry and physics. Um, but also institutions seem to have this. There's a biological metaphor. I think in the life of institutions, where in the beginning there seems to be more freedom, dynamism. You know, latitude for strange behaviors, uh, and as institutions old, look at NASA, um, tremendous, colossal accomplishment, getting to the moon, and, and now uh, with the same budget, we can't even get out of low Earth orbit. So it's uh, you know, these institutions do sclerosis is a good metaphor because mm-hmm. it's this hardening of the veins, and um, and and so maybe that's part of the the lives of these scientists too. It's it's interesting how boring science is now. You have to spend all your time filling out grant applications, 500 pages of conditions and rules about that. You have to uh, work as a postdoc three times in a row before you might get to your lab. It's a, it's quite a uh, people are less daring. Uh, truth seekers nowadays than they were back then and 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 more like just like mid-level functionaries in some bureaucracy um the the point on creativity is, is an interesting one and it brings me to a possible contradiction on this topic that i've found mm. in your writing and in the writings of your mentor peter Thiel. yeah um I think we both agree that hyper specialization is suboptimal. Mm. But on the flip side, you know, students pursuing quote well-roundedness right. to uh, to maintain some you know maximum optionality into the future and into their careers that also seems like the wrong approach. So, is there you know does that imply some middle ground that people should aim for? I think the hardcore challenge is not that you should become a jack of all trades and master of none. I think you have to become a jack of three trades. Hmm. <laughs> so it's like you, you have to put in the hard work. You can't just, or sometimes there's this like T metaphor. It's like, okay, you have superficial knowledge of a bunch of things, but in-depth knowledge of one. I think the really tremendous challenge that people should accept is that, in fact, they actually need like three bars coming down mm. in different areas. And it requires, I mean, at least for me anyway, uh, it's like I've spent time studying uh, philosophy in the classics, and I devoted a long time to that. Um, I don't know what benefit it necessarily gives me in what I do now, but nevertheless, it's like I, I went in deep, and then it's like I've been working in VC and stuff and startups and for 13 years now, so that's like another in depth. I think interdisciplinary um, thinking is really important because it is at mm-hmm. those crossroads where you, you, you get insights, but I, I think you can't do it at a shallow level. And and that would be my criticism of like the the university system. Okay, it's like 
people might come back and say, well, what you're saying is you should take, you know, one course in science, philosophy and all this. And I'm like, no, that's just too shallow. It's like, we should be more demanding of people. <laughs> they should have more interested and go really deep. 10,000 hours in each. <laughs> uh, so your attempt to reform the education system kind of tackled this problem head on and uh, mm. made an attempt at giving ambitious young people an alternative to college, first with the Teal Fellowship and later with uh, the 1517 Fund. Can you share a quick history of these initiatives, how they came to be and, and where mm. they are today? Yeah, I mentioned at the outset that Peter had been thinking about starting a new university. I'm not quite sure when he had that first thought. I would guess sometime around 2005. 2006. Um, he had one of his, uh, I guess the president at his private foundation conducted a research study of what it would take to start a university. And I, I think there's this term, uh, institutional isomorphism, which is like academic jargon for people just imitate each other and do the same things. But you see these institutions all converging on the same, the same structure, the same requirements, the same professors. Like, you know, what's driving that could be regulations, uh, accreditation. I think that is a big part of it. Um, but it's also just the, the, the culture as well. And I, I think because Peter knew that, it, that you needed prestige and high status in order to enter the university game, it's just like tough to bootstrap from nothing. Now, it's interesting today to see Joe Lonsdale, Neil Ferguson, some other people have decided they wanted to start a new university in Austin, Texas. Um, and I think they are facing some of these issues that I think Peter, uh, you know, foresaw as being problems. Uh, so by 2010, uh, I guess, you know, Peter had been thinking for a long time. Uh, Facebook, in the meantime, had continued its upward trajectory. The movie The Social Network was set to come out in September 2010. And Peter had hired me to be an analyst at his hedge fund and to help him teach a class at Stanford Law School. So I showed up to work the first day on September 27th, and that was a Monday. Social Network was set to come out Friday, and the night before, on a plane ride back from New York to San Francisco, Peter, Jim O'Neill, Luke Nozick, a PayPal um, co-founder, um, you know, they were having a conversation, and they thought, wow, with this movie coming out, it'd be interesting to change the conversation, and we've been, you know, maybe we just look for, you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg. Um, maybe, maybe there's something to be said for doing, you know, helping people start companies outside of college. And then the debate was, well, how do we get this going? And Peter was like, well, we, we should announce it tomorrow. Um, cause he had a, uh, a scheduled talk at TechCrunch disrupt this big conference. So I show up to work the next morning and Jim O'Neill comes to my desk and he's like, okay, we got to go to Peter's house last night. We came up with this idea. We're going to this conference. we got to announce it to the world. I'm like, all right, sure. I'm in, you know, he called it the anti-Rhodes scholarship at first, which I loved because I, I, I knew a lot of Rhodes scholars in my time at Oxford tend to be very insufferable uh, people. Uh, so we go to Peter's and um, in a car and then I'm in a car with him and we're like talking, what do we call this thing? How much money? Nailing down some of the details, get to the conference center and then Peter announces it to the world. Um, I think in the present tense where he's making it sound like, I think he says we're taking applications. Um, so that was wild. Yeah. Launched it that day. I called my parents that night. I was just like, geez, what, uh, what's tomorrow going to be like? Uh, so that was, the, that was the birth of the Teal Fellowship. Uh, that 
it made news because there were two uh, noteworthy conditions of the grant. One was that you had to be 19 and under to apply, and the second was that um, you had to not be enrolled in school. You had to be drop. You had to drop out, stop out, not go to school, <laughs> whatever the case may be. And and right away the press went crazy. Uh, you know, Jacob Weisberg at Newsweek wrote an article. He called this the a white man's version of the NBA. <laughs> it's just so stupid. <laughs> he said we're going to corrupt everyone's minds by you know, fostering their greed and stoking their love of money uh, at the expense of deepening their souls, reading great books, and some, you know, Jeremy ad like that. <laughs> and then it, uh, and that continued for years uh, with different types of, of people. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 you know, co-ran that program with some people over five years. Uh, my current co-founder with 1517, Danielle Strackman, we brought her on all like two weeks later after that first day. So it, it, it was fun. You know, we had a lot to learn and, um, and, and that's what brought me to 1517. Um, so we, after five years of giving out grants, we thought, wow, geez, yeah, we could be making money doing this. Um, we had helped Vitalik Buterin in 2013, launched Ethereum in 2014. Uh, Dylan Field started Figma in 2012. Um, that was bought last year by Adobe for 20 billion. But, um, even in 2015, I thought, wow, these are, there's some opportunities here. So we, we spun out, stepped aside from the tail fellowship and, and launched our fund. So we make investments. Um, we, uh, we're called 1517 again with the names. Uh, so we, we, we likened the, uh, declining universities and corrupt universities to the, to the church of the. 16th century. And in particular, 1517 is the year Martin Luther nailed his theses to a church door. And what he was protesting against was the sale of a piece of paper, the indulgence, the church, you know, sold these things, collecting great sums of money, telling people, you know, save your soul. And so the analogy we were making was that, you know, the, the diploma is the modern indulgence and, and universities are telling people you go to hell unless you, you save your soul by buying one. Uh, and, and I noticed people liked, uh, if I had a number on my shirt, people would ask me about it. Uh, so yeah, we've been in business eight years. Um, we've had one very public success, a company called Luminar Technologies went public in 2020. Uh, we helped Austin Russell start, uh, that company when he was a Teal fellow in 2013 and, uh, made our first investment in 2015. Uh, but we got others in the in the pipeline, and and we're doing really well as a fund. And so the book, in part, is also a business story because I thought, wow, this is an incredible business story that you know Danielle and I have no background in finance. Um, I mentioned I studied philosophy in the classics. I thought I was going to be a professor. Danielle started a charter school in San Diego, um, uh, Innovations Academy, and she was a school principal teacher. For many years, it's like, okay, what are these two people doing in venture capital? We have this thesis where we back founders who don't have degrees, um, and we're very successful. So that that's mm-hmm. wild to me. You know, there are VCs out there who can invest in anything in the world, and they have worse track records than us. So <laughs> that's pretty mm-hmm. weird. Um, this guy, I can't remember his full name, but um, he's the leading. Uh, independent analyst of venture capital. Uh, he runs a a, sur- a a website and newsletter called CB Insights. Um, and he recently did a uh, 
takedown or you know a description of the teal fellowship and its performance and and he he was just his mind was blown you know so don't listen to me just look at the uh, rate of success at teal fellows and and it's truly astonishing how many people have created billion dollar companies you know the rate in vc is typically like one out of 20 or something with a good fund and like the fact that we were like seven percent of our fellows have have gone on to create billion dollar opportunities is pretty wild so yeah, I wanted to tell the behind the scenes account of that. Um, I also wanted to, there aren't many memoirs about, there are a lot of memoirs about people starting companies, uh, about people working in companies and becoming disillusioned. I noticed there are no real memoirs about starting a venture capital fund. There's one by Tom Perkins, the founder of Kleiner Perkins, um, but it's you know really gossipy and about his love life. and. Um, and so I thought, okay, this would be cool to also show people, you know, what, what is the world of VC? Your, your success in both of these endeavors depends on identifying talent. Your job can be, you know, described as a manhunt. You're Professor oh. X out there in the world looking for mutants, which yep. is, you know, it strikes me as an incredibly difficult problem. Uh, you and your colleague, Danielle, were given a piece of advice when you uh, started the Teal Fellowship. We're not looking for Einstein. We're looking for Howard Hughes. What do you think the intuition is behind that? One time with Peter, I remember we were talking about how difficult certain achievements were. And he, he, he said once he thought it was easier to win a Nobel Prize than to create a long-lasting uh, you know, multi-billion dollar company. Um, so I, th I think it is true that accomplishment in business is... Uh, underrated and overlooked by some of these more prestigious intellectual achievements. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, pure basic science and theoretical research are exciting and worthwhile, but it is a very different game compared to commercializing uh, that, you know, technology is built on science or inventing new things. Um, and Howard Hughes, I don't know a lot of details of his life. Obviously, he ended you know, the tail end of his life was, um, as an ignominia, you know, just like a recluse who, uh, was, was, was mad, but you know, his early days, he, he was quite the industrialist. That's an old term. I think people used for people like Elon Musk and in, in the back in the day where, you know, maybe you have multiple industries that you've disrupted. He was, he's known as the aviator. He, uh, you know, was involved in Hollywood and, it's just uh, interesting to think about his life. So I, I think, you know, a better way of saying it today might be like, hey, we're looking for Elon Musk, not Stephen Hawking, or something like that, where it's clear that, you know, someone is, is about doing, uh, building um, just a, 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 a man of action uh, rather than contemplation. Sticking to this topic of identifying talent, you spend a good chunk of your book describing you know, the problem for what it is, this rich, mm -hmm. deep, colorful, tacit assessment, it's not some formula or some checklist that you can just go down and you do so using really colorful and interesting language, sometimes made up terms. Yeah. Um, and you come away understanding that it's a process that depends more on intuition than on analysis. Mm -hmm. In their book, Talent, Tyler Cowen and Daniel Gross describe Peter Thiel's talent spotting ability as they understand it, saying, quote, his approach is not well described by any kind of mechanical formula. We understand Peter as applying a very serious philosophical and indeed even moral test to people. In our view, 
Peter actually asks whether you deserve to succeed, as he understands that concept, and he derives additional information from that interior and indeed deeply emotional line of inquiry. Does that resonate with you? And have you developed a similar moral test for judging well, talent? Certainly the part about mechanical rules. Um, I think I think our ability to describe the characteristics of the right stuff, you know, what, what are the contributors to success? And there are no guarantees. It's a wicked, wild problem. Um, so it, it's like you can, you can look for strong correlations with success, and, and that's what we're looking for in these types of virtues in people. Um, but on the other hand, you, know, you can possess them all so and, and still fail. So you know, maybe they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. Um, so, so there's that side of it. Uh, every, every investor has to have a theory of the right stuff when it comes to backing teams, you know, what, what makes a great team or founder, uh, and maybe they put different emphasis on different things. I think that, you know, that is beautifully phrased in, in, the gross Cowan book about, do you deserve to succeed in the sense of not like maybe being a good person, but just because you're, you're, you know, being a good, being a good person is different from being a good entrepreneur. <laughs> and, and I think it's more that second sense is that, you know, you deserve your success, even if you don't mm-hmm. always get it. Um, but, but it is, yeah, I think you have little information to go on in terms of the business and the product at the earliest stage of investment. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's a prototype, maybe there's some pilot customers, but, uh, there's very little information in the way of thinking about, okay, can this scale and become something that dominates North America in this industry that, that that's, you know, barely a glimmer at that point. So you have to really evaluate, you know, the team. And and we noticed this with the, with the Teal Fellowship, the first year we had an application, we were too imitative of science, of, uh, universities where we, We'd ask for GPAs and what school you went to, and test scores, and you know it could be helpful, but it, it 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 wasn't it wasn't great information. There were other things about the person that seemed to matter more, and those are some of those traits that that we came to hunt for. Uh, one in particular, I'll just you know elaborate because uh, it's kind of interesting. Came from Peter is this idea of. This, this polarity of opposites, this insider-outsider thing he looks for. Um, he, you know, Peter was a student of René Girard. Girard's a French literary theorist turned anthropologist who studied the world's mythologies, canvassed literature, and always with an eye to investigating social dynamics behind witch hunts, mob behavior, human sacrifice, scapegoating. And in his monograph on the scapegoat, he talks about the type of person who is chosen by the crowd to be sacrificed to, you know, who is the scapegoat. And it's interesting in mythologies, that person is also sometimes the hero. Uh, you can think of Christ standing out in that respect. Um, so, uh, so yeah, what did Gerard find? Well, one thing he found was that uh, in order to be the scapegoat, oftentimes you were neither a complete outsider, foreigner. Uh, meaning like you, if you had nothing to do with the social crisis at hand completely in this town, you know, you lived on the other side of the world, uh, then therefore you won't be held responsible. 
and then on the other hand, uh, you can't be so much of an insider that you're like the king's right hand and so loyal and loving and, and trustworthy. Uh, that person isn't chosen. Who's chosen is some boundary figure who, who is both inside and outside, paradoxically, at the same time. And so you see this in stories. I mean, even even in uh, the case of Christ, uh, he's he is Jewish. He is educated in, in Jewish traditions and, and laws and so on. But nevertheless, he's this outsider preaching when he shouldn't with people who might not be considered Jews. Um, so, and then, and then with Oedipus as a famous example, he's, uh, thinks he's from another city, but in fact, he was born in the city he's in and he is the cause of the social crisis at hand. Um, so yeah, Girard had this theory and then Peter picked up on it as a heuristic to think about creativity, the types of people who are generative people. And, and, and so he used this insider outsider lens. I think immigrants are a good example of that in entrepreneurship. You see a lot of uh, famous companies built by immigrants in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think that's in part because they are insiders, they're you know, American citizens. Um, but on the other hand, maybe they're new to the country or their parents are new. And so they, they do retain an outside perspective uh, that is different from maybe uh, you know people whose families have been here for generations. So I think that can be a, a, a source of dynamism in, in people. And, and that's something Peter got from an unusual source. Uh, and, and how do you see it? Well, yeah, it's not a mechanical rule. You just kind of get a sense from people's story. I want to tell my own insider outsider story with the book. I was going to become an academic. I you know, went deep inside the inner sanctum of the temple and then I left. Um, so I, you know, I have that characteristic in, in that respect. Um, so then, you know, that's one of the things, but, all told is like, yeah, you get, it's a, I, I read a book uh, recently on the real Top Gun. Um, and one of the things I think was interesting was, you know, there were like seven, eight traits that they look for in Top Gun pilots. And what I found interesting was that that list overlaps with my own when it comes to thinking about great entrepreneurs. It could be something like a willingness to challenge the status quo or majority opinion or, uh, you know, a passion for the mission that can sustain someone in a very unforgiving environment year over year. Uh, so because they're so similar that it dawned on me, like how little words, uh, how, how little work words do when it comes to judgment. Because even if I know what these things look for in some people, I would not know how to pick a Top Gun pilot. You know, you can't just switch me in there and give me that list and say, okay, go to, go to work. So it's like the, the, the judgment, the intuition is built up on examples and samples. Uh, for us, it was the Teal Fellowship applications, ten, you know, tens of thousands, uh, interviews um, and pitches and so on. And then with input from, you know, the Jedi master himself, Mr. Teal, uh, to the extent that he could, in, 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 in the way that a deep learning algorithm needs a training set, I think everyone who, who wants to think about backing founders early needs some training set in which they learn on by example and sample and not by precept and rule. Um, so I think that's just the art of investing when it comes to that, that early, early stage. As you've, uh, as you've mentioned already, you compared the modern university to the Catholic Church on the eve of the Protestant Reformation, hence the name 1517. Mm -hmm. uh, in October 2017, for the quintessential, you and your associates you know, brought this analogy full circle and posted a new 95 in universities across the country. And the full list is it's a, it's available online. 
and it contains, you know, a few pearls of rebellious wisdom. Uh, and a few <laughs> of my favorites. Number one, life in the U.S. begins with a 13-year mandatory minimum sentence, K through 12. Number 14, beware of any group that spends most of its time deciding who could be admitted. Number 89, <laughs> permanent grades on a permanent transcript inculcate a permanent fear of failure. But the one that really got me thinking is number 93. The future of education will be one, asynchronous, two, decentralized, three, customized, four, with an attention to measuring improvements, five, accessible to all for cheap, and six, global. And so this really begs the question, why has EdTech as a sector failed to live up to this potential? It's a great question because there's so much material that's available for free. And so why haven't, and, and I, well, the truth be told is like, I am meeting more and more people who are autodidacts. Um, but on the other hand, you're right. Especially when it comes to like parents, I meet and talk to my friends, uh, even my own family. It's like, they, they still just you know, trust that school system. Um, you know, I think one of the big issues that I guess I didn't touch on in that little, little, uh, description was that one of the big problems is just the curiosity, the burning curiosity to, to want to learn. And the homeschooling crowd will tell you that the curiosity is beaten out of young people uh, because it is that K through 12 prison that they're required to do things they don't want to do. And they come to hate reading uh, because they have to read these awful novels. Um, so I think, I, you know, maybe there's some truth to that, but I, I, I still think it's a lot like fitness as well, where we see people, even though they dream of having great bodies and working out all the time, being healthy, uh, it's hard for people to maintain a, a, a consistent regimen over the years. And I think education is the same, um, you know, maybe even harder because the pain and difficulty of learning is real. Um, you know, you can have a curiosity that takes you places, but when it comes to mastering material, um, we we have learned a lot about you know what are the best techniques for for learning, and the top three are self testing, uh, spacing. So it's like you continue to test yourself uh, across the months and years, bringing old material back, and then the other one is inter interweaving things. So it's like you're testing yourself on on philosophy at the same time you're testing yourself on quantum mechanics. Um, so those things are hard. That's like to, to I mean, get your reps in. It's, it's like, it's really hard to get people to do that. So, you know, that material's out there. I think that could go a long way to explaining why we haven't seen more people, but, but they're coming. It's like I'm meeting lots of young people who, who have, uh, you know, they, they, especially with like computer engineering, they, they just go out there on their own. They're learning from tutorials on YouTube or wherever, I don't know, boot camps. It's like I meet 18 year olds and they have six years coding experience. That's insane. <laughs> so, so we are starting to see it in some places. Um, I don't know about the social component. I think that, you know, I think that's something families care a lot about. Um, but man, I, I just, the, the current public school system, it just seems so. And then even the private school system, it just all seems like kabuki daycare to me it doesn't seem like real real learning at, at, at the pace that you would need to truly like learn sticking with uh, education for one more second 
you were hired by Peter Thiel to help him put together a class that he would be mm-hmm. teaching at Stanford on tech and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of his major requirements was that you make the course, quote, as subversive as possible. What did he mean by that? And why do you think that that's an important element to an education? Now, such an interesting word to use. Part of me thinks we, we put Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age on the syllabus. I can't remember why. I think, you know, we were just talking about novels we liked. And, and Peter jumped on that one. And if, if, you, if you've read the novel, um, it's, a, it's a book about education. It's a sci-fi story about, about education. You know, there's this uh, engineer who develops an AI tutor, um, three of them actually, but, but one of them uh, manages to slip out of his hands into the, into the hands of a gang, which then leads it to uh, falling into the lap of, of uh, a young, young girl. Uh, in, in this AI tutor educates her and she, you know, so it becomes this, this, uh, Bildung's Roman story of growth of this young woman being tutored by this AI. Um, but one of the interesting things about the, the creation of the AI in that story is the, the, uh, funder of the project and, and the man behind it asks the creator to, to make a subversive <laughs> education. Um, so maybe Peter was thinking about that. And, and, and that was his use of the word. But I also think it was a practical thing. Um, I think, you know, in his own experience, he, he uh, was set on becoming a, a lawyer, you know, a typical lawyer at a, a big name firm. Um, he also was interested in, in politics, but certainly on the side of the law. So he, he was a clerk for, I think, uh, an appellate court. Um, and he was on that path. Uh, and 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 managed to you know get off it, a big transition in his life. So I think that was the subversive element. You know, Peter was thinking like, can he recruit out of that class? Can he make hires either for his hedge fund, his foundation, something else? People starting companies. Uh, so in essence, it was is about subverting people away from careers and and strictly in the law. And then and actually, a handful of people came out of that class that are quite. Uh, you know, famous in their own way, I suppose, not like nationally. Well, maybe in one case, like Blake Masters was one of our students. Uh, I remember reading his paper. <laughs> he was, yeah, he was one of the top three or four students in the class. So we offered him a summer role at, uh, at Founders Fund. And then, and then there are a couple other people who, who are still working with Peter to this day who, who were in that class. So, so I think, yeah, the subversive element was, can we get people to not go to the white shoe law firm, big law, but instead, was there someone in the class who might be interested in shaking things up, doing something new and different? Yeah, I think there's this, you know, rule breaking aspect to creativity too, you know, yeah. like uh, Philippe Petit is the the French high wire performance artist who's famous for having- Oh, I uh, love that, that, that documentary okay. about that guy, yeah. yeah. Who, who walked the gap between the World Trade Center. Mm. Um, and, you know, he wrote a book about his experience called Creativity, the Perfect Crime. And there's oh, something to that, okay, I think, wow. where it's, you know, what made this such a charismatic, mm. you know, piece of performance art was that so much planning went into rule breaking. How do we sneak in? How do we pull this <laughs> off? Had it been planned and, you know, yeah. uh, the, the, with a full, you know, pageantry like to welcome him. Yeah. But instead, it was a, there was a, you know, subversive element to it. I know. I, I have come across, I, I want to read that book. That sounds great. Um, 
because I love the documentary, but but I've also come across some of the research in sociology. There's sociology of risk taking. Um, this guy wrote a book called Edge Work and interviewed a lot of criminals about why they do what they do. And, and there was definitely this love of the creative aspect of the work and the uh, and the the exhilaration and thrill of, of breaking the rules. Uh, so there there was some overlap I saw between that type of risk taking and and you know, also what entrepreneurs are doing. Um, so that's kind of interesting. I think artists too, same thing. You know, they, there's a thrill of breaking the rules of whatever the genre have established or the previous generation, something like that. One uh, one final question on the topic of of education. Mm-hmm. Arthur Meltzer has this book called Philosophy Between the Lines that sort of paints a picture of Straussian writing throughout the years. Um, he sketches out the four main reasons why a writer would uh, be motivated to write esoterically. You know, the first is to avoid persecution. The second is protective to protect society. If you're if you're sharing potentially you know, destabilizing truths. Maybe you share it with a, a select few rather than the masses. Right. The third is political, you know, for reasons of propaganda. And the final one he sketches out is pedagogical. There's yeah. something to discovering a truth for yourself. As a philosopher who's thought a lot about the question of education, do you think mm-hmm. there's a uh, missing esoteric dimension to modern education? I really do. It dawned on me, I'm, the Straussian read of Plato I mean, not exactly how Strauss reads it, but I, but I, I think what people think about Plato now is largely a distortion or outright illusion created by his esoteric writing. So, like, what are some of the famous things Plato is known for? Is like establishing the rule of philosopher kings, banishing poetry, uh, some authoritarian elements. That you know, people aren't quite at home with, especially in the Republic. Let's say. Um, so that that's like the common understanding of Plato. But the Straussian read is much more fascinating to me because Plato was not just writing uh, treatises on philosophical topics. You know, the Symposium is not a treatise about love, although it touches on elements of that. Um, instead, what you have to do to get between the lines and behind the scene is to understand. First of all, when and where is this dialogue taking place and who are the people in it? Who are the interlocutors? So the, the, you know, take the Republic. Here's this meditation on justice and, and where some of these things come from, like banishing poetry and, and so on. But the people Socrates are talking to, like Glaucon, one of the main interlocutors, is Plato's brother. And what's more is you have to understand the uh, history of the Peloponnesian War. So you know, this war between Athens and Sparta, uh, that Athens was getting crushed in, eventually led to its demise. You know, the Spartans, you know, the democracy in Athens was devolving into demagoguery. And then after the, you know, Spartan conquest, there were turnover, tyrants, then other people were reestablished. Like the governance was a nightmare. And Glaucon turned out to be one of these people who aided the tyranny. Um, and, and some of the other characters, for instance, fit that. So, you know, the main challenge of the Republic is Glaucon saying to Socrates, he invents this ring that's like the ring of, in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the ring of invisibility. And he's like, hey, if you, you know, you wear this ring, you can get away with anything you want without consequence. So prove to me, he says, he's challenged to Socrates. It's like, show me that 
you know, it's worth being just, even if I don't face any punishments for being unjust. And, and so this is the Straussian read. It's interesting that Socrates fails. We have to know that Glaucon goes on to become a tyrant or in the symposium that Alcibiades goes on to become this, this <laughs> madcap nut who undermines the Athenian uh, side of the, you know, their efforts against the Spartans. So it's like, you got to know these things because what is that? We have to deal with Socratic failure on the, on the um, Straussian read. Now, why is that important today? I think Plato is saying there are limits to discourse. There are limits to explicit explanatory writing and analysis, something that has to go beyond it, that there are truths that transcend reason in our ability to communicate. And so his, the drama of his dialogues and then therefore the esoteric reading is, is what enables you to get beyond that. And to me, I think academic philosophy has brought many insights, certainly helped shape our understanding of certain problems and limitations of, of, of thought. But I also think it has been a failure when it comes to, you know, helping people live better lives or think about what's good, the meaning of life and these things. And I think that is due in part because they, they like Socrates, have failed. Uh, and I think we have to reach back to some of this pedagogical aspect of, of the esoteric writing uh, in order to, to maybe access those truths that Plato was pointing to. Moving away from uh, from education, mm. um, yeah, that was a long rant, but yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> you wrote that the chief point of your book is that quote the fate of our civilization depends upon replacing or reforming unreliable and corrupted institutions. Mm. Europe attempts to reform education came from the outside, as reformation often does, but. What does coming from the outside mean when we're looking to tackle the other institutions of our society like government, healthcare, and, and, and central banking? What role mm -hmm. do you think charter cities will play in the reopening of the frontier? Well, one thing the charter cities could do is just provide a, a new space to try something new. Uh, people have, I mean, even take democracy itself. There are some wild theorists out there in the charter city network state movement who want to experiment with new forms of voting, let's say. Uh, could be quadratic voting, could be something called liquid democracy, where people are voting frequently on different things. Um, so it could be in the world of politics that you just get to try something new. The issue is that uh, the number of countries in the world has been pretty static. And like that institutional isomorphism, that, that phrase about this converging uh, appearance and, and set of capabilities and outlooks. I think that's true of the nation state as well. So we're, we haven't been able to see new entry with new experiment in the world of governance. Uh, I think one of the exciting things about charter cities is that they might allow that. Um, so, you know, that remains to be seen that all those projects, you know, some are gaining momentum now, um, but, uh, but we haven't seen any, any really great efforts yet. Prospera in Honduras is probably the leader. It is interesting to see what they're doing, but, uh, but yeah, I'd love to see more. Um, yeah. Some of the old institutions, um, you know, maybe <laughs> I'll go back to the source of, 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 of it all, the crypto. Um, I think, I think new modes of, of storing value of, uh, coming in, you know, maybe even the smart contracts, like maybe real social contracts among people dispersed in, in geography, 
could become a reality. I would love to see these new new things tried, but we can't, you know, do it now either because the technology wasn't there in the past or because, you know, there's no room in the, in the old. Um, I think uh, the fate of our, I think really the the stakes could not be higher. I think that is not an overstatement that I made. I think, you know, whether it's due to nature or some man-made error or hostilities among uh, warring parties, I think, you know, human extinction would be very bad and we can't be complacent to just accept where we are now because eventually, you know, we'll, we'll pull the trigger and, and the chamber is loaded. You know, the game of Russian roulette and these things um, could come sooner than we think. So I, I, I think we can't stand still. I don't think we can go back like the environmentalists want us to do, back to the Shire, back to living on farms with you know, goods only produced in my hut. Uh, that, again, certainly on the scale of nature, will spell our doom. But I also think, you know, humans get nasty when, when resources are scarce. So the only way out is through. And the only way to advance, I mean, we could look at science too, even like the NSF, the NIH, all these, all these old institutions need to rethink how they give grants. We could look for ways to accelerate progress uh, at that level. Um, you know, I could go on and on, but, uh, but I do think it's worth emphasizing just how high the stakes are. Continuing on that theme. Sir John James Calperthwaite, who you profile in the book, was a British civil servant who served as financial secretary of Hong Kong in the 1960s. He's widely credited with having helped turn post-war Hong Kong into the you know financial epicenter it eventually became. But uh, for a bureaucrat, he had a bit of a rebellious streak. Um, he refused to measure and report stats on the region's economic development as it was happening. Um, what do you think was behind his insight in refusing to do so? And do you think it generalizes beyond 1960s China? Uh, yeah, it's one of those weird historical natural experiments that popped up in the 20th century where the British still re retained control of the Spitaland, Hong Kong, and Kowloon across the bay. Um, and so they operated under one system of laws. And the rest of mainland China uh, decided to operate under a different set of rules. And uh, by the end of Cowper Cowperthwaite's tenure, it was pretty clear <laughs> uh, that there was a, a big difference between the two outcomes. Um, and, you know, we can quibble about, oh, uh, you know, Hong Kong is this trading zone, you know, it's bound to always be successful, but uh, but I do think it's clear that the you know the governance was responsible for their success. And what's more is it was replicated. Um, you know, Singapore certainly took a different authoritarian in some ways or strict uh, social control, uh, but in others they they did operate. You know, the Hong Kong playbook, and then from Singapore to the rest of mainland China. So when Mao finally left office. And Deng came into power, and people were thinking about, well, what do we do now? Uh, people are you know, fleeing mainland to, to, in the same way we see Cubans trying to come to Miami. Uh, there were people from the mainland trying to get to Hong Kong. Um, so they, they, they basically ran the Hong Kong playbook, starting in some special economic zones. And, and what does that mean? It's, yeah, it's a set of rules, regulate laws, regulations. 
some level of taxes that are that are different from the rest of the country. Um, so yeah, to me, we could look at two economies and two men. We could look at Calperthwaite in Hong Kong, and maybe Che Guevara and Cuba, or Fidel Castro in Cuba, and and you just think of the wonderful natural endowments that Cuba has as a island. Um, and then, you know, what these men wrought with that over a uh, 40, 50 year time period. I mean, it's really quite tragic and, and sad um, and also horrifying uh, when it came to the totalitarian uh, control and the murder and the oppression. Uh, whereas, and, and, and yet, yeah, I'm going to be the libertarian who complains about all the Che Guevara t-shirts out there, right? Um, whereas, you know, no one knows who Cowperthwaite is. Uh, so I, I, I sought out to tell his story a little bit because I think it's so fascinating and because it connects, you know, Hong Kong serves as a great example of the potential of charter cities. that if we allow, you know, some small area to operate under a different set of rules, one that you know, one rule set that could be really conducive to innovation and finance and, and, and the economy. Uh, you know, I, I, I bet we we won't be surprised to see another Hong Kong somewhere. Um, you know, you can look to Dubai or uh, Abu Dhabi. They're trying things along these lines. Uh, we'll see what happens. But even there, it's interesting to see how much growth there's been over over 20 years. Uh, so yeah, I, to me, I'm 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 inspired by that quite a bit, and you know, I was very sad and, um, having visited Hong Kong in, in 2018 or so that um, that it no longer exists. You know, Hong Kong disappeared in the, <laughs> in, in the last few years, and, and and that's a sad story to me too. So it's almost like uh, I wanted that chapter to be a bit of an elegy too. And so, what's the intuition? What's what's the reasoning behind not measuring the progress as it happens? Oh yeah, that was great. Well, uh, I, yeah, I mean, no data is better than big data, right? So, uh, I, I think there's this urge and impulse to control. Once uh, you know, even a, a minimum, a minarchist state, uh, there are power hungry people out there, and when they enter government, they will do what they can to control uh, more and more aspects of of the nation. And I think Cowperthwaite had the strong intuition that numbers uh, give the false illusion of control, that somehow you think you can control unemployment or inflation with these levers and say, maybe you can to some degree, but like the urge to want to control as soon as you have the number is there. I think that's a very wise insight on his part. So he thought it would be better not to measure at all. <laughs> well, heading into the final section of your book, it's a coda where you detail the many areas of science where we can hope to make progress, almost Mm -hmm. in encyclopedic fashion. You go through energy and transportation and healthcare. And one final section on human flourishing, in which you present a very nuanced criticism of the specific brand of stoicism that's emerged in tech circles in the Mm -hmm. last, you know, decade, um, writing that the rise of stoicism TM is a sign of a civilization in decline. What's wrong with uh, the teachings of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus in San Francisco? I get I, I go back to the foundations. So I, having studied the philosophies of the ancient world, it, it, there was a marketplace at that time, and these were competing schools, and they all had criticisms of each other. So the Stoics uh, were competing with the Aristotelians, who were, were competing with Plato's descendants, and they'd all uh, pick fights with each other over certain things. So... The first thing that stood out to me about the modern, uh, the resurgence of, of 
interest in stoicism was that it seemed to not take into account some of the things that, you know, the old contemporaries accused Stoics of. Um, so that, uh, you know, people like Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday, I think they're, they got good intentions. I think there is a real hunger out there for, uh, a framework to think about how to live, you know, what is a good life and, you know, what are the important things I should care about? But I, I had come away from, studying some, you know, the Plato and Aristotle thinking that the stoicism was wanting in some ways. My chief complaint is, um, is, is it's inclined, it's, it's inclined towards subjectivism in a sense. Um, I think, you know, we want our belief, we want our beliefs to track the world. We want, you know, we want to have true beliefs that form a body of knowledge. And, you know, in that sense, beliefs are tracking the world. Um, we don't want to live in an illusion, or at least most people don't. Uh, they want what they believe to be true. And I think the same, you know, as beliefs are to facts, I think emotions are to value. And, uh, and, and so what does that mean to me? I think at a minimum, I think value, you know, we can, do, like, these are big philosophical debates. But to me, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say that you know, I'm not a subjectivist when it comes to my theory of, of what's good in the world. I think there are good things independent of any human thought. Um, and, and what that is, it's not just a matter of opinion, you know, it's somehow out there, not in one's head. And so I think, uh, you know, our emotions, if they're there to track what's of value, or, you know, what's meaningful, uh, we want that connection to be very tight and real and deep. And so I think, you know, basically there's a threefold structure to emotion where the, you know, the first aspect would be, we want, uh, there's a belief attached to it. Uh, and we want that belief to be true. So if I, if I'm sad because I believe that my cat died, but it didn't actually die, then, you know, that emotion doesn't feel fitting, right? That shouldn't, we shouldn't be sad for something that didn't happen. Uh, the second aspect is that there's a positive or negative evaluation implied in a lot of emotions. So, uh, you know, you feel joy, you feel exhilaration. Those are generally, you know, should be accompanied by, you know, positive things. And then likewise, grief because you lost a loved one, you know, is a negative dimension. Um, so, you know, I think, I think in a way we can also say that your emotion should be fitting. It's very strange if you're at a funeral and someone is laughing their ass off having the time in their life, right? Or, uh, or the opposite, uh, you know, that's a, at a very joyful moment. Uh, people are, are full of grief and, and depressed. Um, you know, those emotions aren't, there's not a good fit there. Something's off. Um, and then, and then the last one and probably the hardest is, uh, you know, our feelings should be proportional to the evaluation. So what does that mean? Okay, well, don't cry over spilled milk. Um, you know, it's something maybe, maybe, okay, you believe the milk spilled. Um, you do evaluate it in a negative direction. Okay, it's not the best thing, but it should be in proportion. The feeling should be in proportion to that evaluation. So, you know, you shouldn't feel great grief over spilled milk. Um, so I feel like what happens with stoicism, because it insists on, you know, this fundamental aspect of our mind that we can somehow choose how we respond to the world, 
um, that there's this inner citadel of the soul that can, the external world can't touch. I think that's very that's a very noble uh, and, and, and awe-inspiring view of the soul. But I, I think they go amiss on these things where um, I think I think sometimes on that second aspect where they want to not ascribe positive evaluations to things or negative evaluations when perhaps they should. But probably most importantly, it's that proportionate response where you know, maybe if you did walk into a Holocaust, into a concentration camp, you walk in the Dachau, um, marching in Germany, you should be pretty fucking angry. (laughs) I don't like, there's all this stoic writing about controlling your anger. Well, sometimes it's really appropriate to be angry. Um, and this stands in stark contrast to the tragic playwrights and, and, and Homer. You know, there's a great book called the tears of Achilles. Achilles is always fucking crying. The guy, whenever he's in camp, he's crying. And then he goes out there and he slaughters people. (laughs) And he he was not, and and this is a hero, right? So this idea that that somehow we want to disconnect from the world and just use our mind to uh, choose how we respond to it. I think it it runs amiss on on those dimensions. And, and, And to me, at its worst, it's like trying to imagine warm weather when you're stuck in an avalanche. You know, okay, good luck. In a, in a German interview with the New Journal of Zurich in 2019, Peter Thiel said, to be honest, I would not invest a cent in companies that are stoic. Why not? He I think I influenced news. him there. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote the... Uh, so yeah, a lot of that sto- that section on stoicism, I originally wrote as an essay that I posted to Medium in 2017 um, that had the title The Inadequacies of the in- Invincible, which I, <laughs> I wish I could have put in the book because I like that. Um, I sent that essay to Peter and I remember he wrote back, he's like, I, I violently agree with this. <laughs> because <laughs> that I think be it's very a, satisfying. I, I, I think one of the I think the, the, the philosophies in conflict of our time are are subjectivism and objectivism in, in, in morality. I think there's a large number of people i think that maybe this is like one of the outcomes of the death of god is is moral relativism or you know this idea that you know we just project our feelings onto a a cold and indifferent universe um and and i you know the consequent upshot of that i think is also a lack of concern with with doing things in the world um if you do just become concerned about you know adjusting to discomfort or pain or whatever then you, you might not be as active in, in trying to change that. Uh, so I think that's what probably resonated with Peter most. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think I sent him the essay, that uh, interview, that made me think of it. You know, so I think some people have tried to argue back and forth with him on that. Um, uh, and he's, he's, he's talked about it in different ways. I think he likes to quote, I think there's this uh, line in, in Milton, he likes to quote that, you know, a heaven can be made a hell and a hell can be made a heaven. Um, but sim- similar principle, I think. You uh, recently wrote a piece for the City Journal called Chariots of Philosophical Fire, in which you explore the incredibly rich period of Oxford philosophy in the 20th century, writing that, quote, what set Oxford apart was that Ryle, Austin, Hanscombe, Parfit, and others believed that ordinary philosophers working together could make extraordinary advances. It seems hard enough to uh, measure advances in science. How should we think about tracking progress when it comes to philosophy? I know, right? Um, 
It's really hard. I think it's it's harder than mathematics, <laughs> but I do think progress is possible. Um, I think certainly on the first level, it could just be our refining our conceptual understanding of what's at stake in some of these big, big questions. Um, so it's almost like e- even if we're fragmenting out pieces of it and not getting the answers, I do think that at least is a little bit of progress. So that could be something like what, in, you know, instead of just talking about a soul, now there are these questions about, okay, what is consciousness and maybe how that's different from this question of free will. I think if we, if we are like defining these problems well in, in, in the questions, I think that that is a form of progress. Um, I don't think consensus is necessarily a form of progress. That's sometimes what people, because they want to see in science, in science, people come to a consensus. But I think in philosophy, that's difficult. There are going to be disagreements because um, you don't have the same way to, uh, you know, verify experiments or the outcomes um, and, or weigh evidence. Um, but But I do think that, like in math, there is this sense in which, um, in which you're just dealing with a very complex and difficult subject matter, and maybe when we do have the problems framed correctly, and then we make scientific discoveries, it ceases to be philosophy. Um, but I do, I do think we can make progress in in different aspects, and then I and then I also think the different areas of philosophy are different. So it's like. Um, you know, morality, uh, epistemology, uh, metaphysics. I mean, e- each subspecialty, I guess, comes with its own nasty issues. But, but I think there can be progress. We've certainly seen to go. You know, to to like, if we if we move away from logical positivism, uh, materialism. I you know, I think these understandings of things are indeed a form of progress too. Though I know people up there would be disputing that. So in Oxford, I think. I think they were really good at refining these issues. And, and I mean, they were obsessed with conceptual analysis and definition of terms. And in that sense, I think uh, that was, that was a form of progress. Another one was just like rejecting, you know, in the past and even in some countries and philosophy departments to study philosophy means you just study great authors from, from the old days, you know, Plato and so on. And I think there's a lot of value in that. But what I think Oxford innovated was this idea that you would just approach the problem of of the ghost in the machine or, you know, what is free will. And you might not even reference in your arguments or whatever the case you're trying to make, you, you might not even reference, you know, what previous great thinkers thought on this problem. You just you're just taking a crack at it yourself. And so that's what I, I think that that bit about, you know, you can just be an ordinary armchair philosopher without having to quote Plato or cite Kant. Uh, and you could actually make some headway on one of these big, big problems. Parfit's influence is very noticeable in the effective altruism community, mm. um, which places a premium on mitigating existential risk in order to preserve the long-term future of humanity. You've written that long-termists are most concerned with two ways of influencing the future, ensuring the survival of humanity and lifting our trajectory but they care much less about accelerating that trajectory change. Mm. Why is that important? That's a, so Parfit uh, was a professor of mine, um, mentor. Oh, wow. He wrote my recommendation to get into Oxford. So I, 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 I've known his work for some time. Um, and it's interesting to see, I like it when I, this is in like 2005 to seven or 2004, I met him 
um, so a long time ago before this. So it's fascinating to see his work grow in that direction or people pick up on it. Um, yeah, I, okay. So with the long time, it's, it's, to go back to the existential risk problem, I, I don't want to deny, I think they're right that we should think about future people. And I think they're right that we should see ourselves at the beginning of human history, that you know, civilization has been around for 10, 12,000 years and modern you know, institutions and science and so on for 500 years or so. Um, so it's, it's incredible to think that there might be 10,000 years ahead of us of, of, you know, continued progress or a hundred thousand years, um, or a million. I mean, that just boggles the mind. So I think the long-termists are correct to think that, um, that this is just the beginning. And so we should be concerned about any threat that could prevent or foreclose, you know, the, the opportunity for those lives to come about. So that, that, that's important. So that, I think that's why they're extra careful. So it's like they're just in this strict utilitarian calculus that can run. Well, okay, there are uh, 8 billion people alive today. And, you know, if we just maintain the current state of things over 10,000 years, that's billions of people who will come into existence. Therefore, you know, we should do whatever it takes to lower the probability of human extinction to zero, even if it means moving at a snail's pace on things. We're getting it right, or you know, that's why they want to focus. Okay, we want to improve things; they focus on that, but uh, they're not so much concerned about acceleration because they worry that 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 may actually bring about extinction faster uh, or at all. Um, so, I, but I, what I, I I don't I'm having trouble these days trying to characterize what I don't like about that assessment, and I think the best analogy is some kind of version of. Um, multiple Russian roulette where, you know, in any gun, there's a bullet and there's some probability that we pull the trigger and it leads to human extinction. Uh, so it's like, and, and, and those guns can represent technological development like AI. Uh, but on the other hand, there are these other guns and it's like, if we can, if we attain some level of learning and knowledge using this technology, it'll help us eliminate the existential risks presented by the others. Uh, so I don't think they do, there's no model they've presented yet, and I don't have one myself, about how to weigh and balance these intuitions that, um, you know, when it comes to AI risk, people always say, okay, is this could be a threat to human, this could be a danger to humanity and lead to our extinction. But it's pretty rare to see any of those people also say, well, you know, what are the existential risks? of going without AI. You know, like if we don't have AI, how much more likely is it that we die from an asteroid hit or a supernova or some pandemic or, or some other thing that, that we're not thinking about. And, and so I, I think we need a better way of assessing the, these, uh, these cost benefit analysis. I, I, I don't think you know, the current framework they use of strict utilitarian calculus is enough, especially when it comes to these, these risks that, that can be mitigated by embracing risk elsewhere. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a hidden opportunity cost to safetyism. But yeah. uh, th this is a perfect segue to, uh, to my next question. The book kind of ends as it begins with Peter Thiel asking you to help build a course, albeit this mm. time on a very different topic, the Antichrist. Can you explain? 
Yeah, I was pretty shocked that Peter wanted to talk about that (laughs) (laughs) breakfast I had with him that I uh, presented a count of in the book. Um, You know, Peter, one thing, and also it's also my effort to fully portray Peter because I think the media doesn't realize that he's a religious thinker Mm -hmm. as well as a philosophical one or as well as being an investor and technologist. Um, and he's very widely read and has some interesting insights into things. I don't even know where to begin where his reading takes him. Um, so the fact that he, you know, we were talking about how, I forget how it came up exactly, but yeah, he, he mentioned he was interested in teaching a seminar on the Antichrist. Um, and, and really, uh, as understood in four ways that Christianity has interacted with politics. And I can't quite remember off the top of my head, all the, these four ways, but one, you know, one is just like King and and like King and altar, you know, the old uh, division in in Europe between the King and, uh, you know, political power and then religious power and the Pope. Uh, But one, one of the interesting other ways we, we were talking about was just how, um, in when nihilism started to spread in Europe in in the late nineteenth century, people didn't embrace a life of hedonism or even just rampage impulsivity. Instead, they embraced communism, and and there's this sense in which communism is Christianity without Christ. That somehow, with the death of God. Um, and a disbelief in resurrection and miracles, uh, Christians are still left with this sense that the victim is the hero, and that victimhood is uh, that the that the weak are actually strong, and that the poor are actually rich, and that we need to do whatever we can to ease the plight of the worst off. That's that's very Christian in its direction. Um, so yeah, we were talking about that, and in, in the Antichrist, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but one of the things that that stands out to me is, um, is like the Antichrist is not this diabolical patent evil. It's this entity or thing or person, whatever it is, is trying to imitate Christ as much as possible in order to fool people into thinking that you know you're you're doing in good hands, thing. yeah. Um, and, and, and I very much, you know, as soon as Peter was talking about that, I, it, it like hit me that, that there's so many conflicts in our world where it's not between good and evil, but between appearance and reality. And, and so appearance could be a form of the antichrist, these illusions, like, uh, and, and, you know, in the book, it's like, is our schools educating people or is it the illusion of education? And it's very much it seems motivated by this this desire to do good. Um, so yeah, fascinating way to think about the conflict of our time is not between good and bad or good and evil, but between, you know, what's good and, and that which only appears to be good. Um, so, you know, kind of mind bending conversation with Peter. I did. Yeah, I did. I thought it was interesting that my, you know, my life with him began with a, with a, a discussion about philosophy and an offer to help teach a class. And then, you know, there was a similar moment later on, a day before Luminar IPOs, 
and I have breakfast with Peter and he's talking about that in the event, you know, he's, he, he hasn't taught that seminar. He's, I think he's given workshops and talks out there on the topic. Um, so I, 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 you know, didn't help him teach a class, but certainly we've exchanged emails and in ideas over dinner and stuff on it. But yeah, I think Peter's religious views are, are fascinating. And I, I hope one day he, he does more writing or, you know, public speaking on this. I think that could be cool. Well, I think he's done uh, a couple of talks recently, one of them being at the Oxford Union on a topic, you know, very close to this mm-hmm. um, with a technological dimension to it. It's right. on one hand, we have stagnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're pushing to make technological advancements, but those are incredibly risky. And and yeah. the threat of catastrophe looms above us. Well, and so a, yeah, is that's there- a vocabulary a uh, uh, difference in vocabulary that could be quite revealing is that Peter mm. doesn't like to talk about existential risk. He, he says he, he frames it in terms of apocalypse, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's this idea of what, you know, what's there to prevent the apocalypse. And I think, yeah. you know, as with the AI risk debate that is currently ongoing is what's needed top-down control mm-hmm. of these technologies to prevent catastrophe in the future. Um, yeah. and so it's a, it's a pretty yeah thought-provoking set of, of talks he's given on the topic. Yeah, and he, and I mentioned this in my book, but I guess there's a passage in Thessalonians uh, that is very controversial and full, you know, there are conflicting views, but, but there's something to suggest that, you know, in, in, in effect, there's something restraining apocalypse or, you know, total, the end of times. And that's something could very well be Satan himself. <laughs> so it's this weird paradox of like somehow Satan or Satan-like things are restraining. Uh, you know, that's debatable. Like most people, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know about most, but a lot of people, um, you know, don't take that interpretation. But, you know, Peter is like, there's this phrase, maybe it's from Schmidt or someone else, um, that the state contains violence. And there's a, there's a bit of a, a double entendre there and contains one is like the state contains chaos, anarchy, warring tribes and brings peace. Uh, but it also contains violence because it uses, you know, violent coercion to bring that peace about. So there's a bit of a paradoxical foundation to, um, to society. And I think there's like, there might in a way be a sense in which, um, the catacomb in the Greek, that's this term to describe this restrainer, that there's something paradoxical about it that, that needs, and, and, and maybe that ties into the AI debate and the way I framed it is like, maybe, maybe these tools are extremely dangerous, but only by using them virtuously uh, and, and you know, maybe with God's providence, uh, can we restrain the evil aspects of, of, of technology that lead to apocalypse? It uh, it's so it sounds like we're left with the difficult problem of having to chart a course between you know the devil of centralized controls on one side and the deep blue sea of of potentially apocalyptic technology on yeah. the other. In uh, in preparation for our call, I reached out to a to a new friend, Tobias Huber, if he wanted to submit oh, any questions yeah. to you, and uh, he submitted one very much along along this line of questioning, which is. Do you think that there are catacontic technologies, i.e. technologies that can help prevent the apocalypse? And if so, what are some candidates? Um, yeah, wow. I, I, I'll go with the social technologies of uh, competitive governance. 
I think there, like one of the weird things about the Antichrist is that it seems to be the case the Antichrist wants one world government. You know, the banner of the Antichrist is peace and security. Uh, and so maybe one of the counterintuitive catacons is the is is actually the nation state or you know these lo- or lower entities competing entities like enclaves and city states uh but that one world government would would actually present us with apocalypse so in in essence uh you know friend and enemy the, the friend enemy distinction that is at the heart of every uh political entity in fact is the bulwark that may protect us from apocalypse and so this leads me to my last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I are both fans of P.D. James's work, The Children of Men. Yep. It's a, a dystopian novel, one that is uh, set in a future UK region where um, it's been 25 years since the last baby has been born. And so it's a dystopian novel, but admittedly a slow burn where um, the apocalypse is far out into the future, but nonetheless, it depicts a society that's in a state of managed decline and one that has no future. And I think that a modern reading of this book, you know, one might be tempted to map on the uh, the topical risks of the day onto the, the story. So maybe, you know, runaway AI is our dangerous future that lies mm-hmm. ahead, or maybe climate change is a better example. Right. We have no future because of climate change. But uh, I think my deeper reading of the book is that um, it's a telling of a people who have lost faith in their ability to solve problems and for that reason have no future. Does that interpretation resonate with you? Yeah, that resonates deeply. Yeah, that's that was a very powerful book. I, I hadn't read it before the last year. Um, I had seen the movie adaptation, uh, but as expected, it was nowhere nearly as rich and compelling as, as the novel um, because James really did depict in vivid detail that that loss of spirit and its consequences. I think this is also one of those thought experiments that really highlights the way that you know things can be important and valuable independent of how we feel about them because if we're you know this idea future generations oftentimes a lot of the things we're doing in the present are oriented towards those future generations clear example could be something like uh, researching a cure for cancer even though you think you know most likely you'll never find that cure in your lifetime but you're contributing to this larger cathedral that one day will benefit those future people if all of a sudden there are no future generations then well why even bother working on on it you know you ask people like okay you're gonna die tomorrow and uh you know if the rest of the world died 30, 30 days after your death, would that matter? It's like, yeah, it seems to matter. Well, you're dead. Why should it matter to you? Well, because it's objectively good that those people are around. I don't know. We could get twisted knots on that. But I think you're right. I, I The book is just a, a beautifully written book, uh, tragic in its, in its portrayal of, of, you know, of people who have given up hope. Um, and there are these parallels with today that just seem so sad. There are so many people who, um, you know, I've met who, in effect, have sterilized themselves because they fear the future or they think these problems are unsolvable. And, and that, that, I think, is something that we should, you know, work to turn around either by, by example, by solving the problems or, or, you know, convincing them that that's not the way. It's sad to me when I meet people and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I can't bring children to this world. It's just 
you know, climate change, AI, or whatever the case may be. It's like, it's like those could be the sterilizing ideas, not, not, it's not a virus like in the novel or some disease. It's just, um, you know, a set of ideas. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that it's an important aspect of our, our culture to change. I mean, it's hard to imagine building a better future if you can't first conceive of one. Uh, mm -hmm. And so on that note, I think uh, the right place to end this is with my favorite thesis of them all, number 90. Okay. The future is present, but invisible. We have to pull it from a place unseen where no one is looking through the door. No one has tried with the key we have long forgotten. Our future was lost in our past, but we can find it. I love that. Michael, <laughs> it's awesome thank you so much. something I read, I wrote a long time ago. That's great. Uh, not long time, I mean years ago, but it's like, oh shit, that's actually beautiful. I love that. Well, thank you so much for having been the inaugural guest on the Splinter Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, man. It's been fun.